Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, brought to you by 11FS. Today, we're going to talk about open banking. I'm Sarah Kachansky, and I'm joined today by some people who are involved right in the heart of implementing open banking. I'm also joined by my colleague, Adam Davis, who's making his podcasting debut. How are you today, Adam? I am. I'm very well, thank you. And yourself? I'm good. Are you excited to be here? I am very excited. Very <laughs> excited. Looking forward to it. Um, we are also joined by Dan Globerson, Head of Open Banking at RBS. How are you today, Dan? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Uh, Faith Reynolds, who is an independent consumer representative for Open Banking. I hope I got your title right, Faith. Yeah, that's great. I do a number of different things, all <laughs> consumer related. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, Sam Seaton, who's the CEO at Money Hub. How are you today, Sam? Yes, very good. Thank you. And last but by no means least, Francesco Simoneschi, CEO at TrueLayer. How are you today, Francesco? Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for having me here. So, uh, open banking is a complex subject, to say the very least. Um, what we're going to do in this show is we're going to try and break it down so it makes some sense for those who are both unfamiliar with the concept and also those who want to understand it a bit better. So, we're going to talk about some of the challenges involved in implementing um, the associated rules and regulations. We're also going to address the very thorny problem of getting customers to buy in to open banking. So, to start with, um, can I ask uh, Francesco and Sam to provide overviews of what your companies actually do and sort of what, what part you take in this open banking landscape? So there's a lot of acronyms out there. So, if you could kind of tell us where you guys sit um, in, in the chain, that would be great. Who wants to go first? Ken. So, um, Trulayer is an um, aggregation platform for um, gaining access to many different banks um, in the UK, of course, but also outside of the UK as a um, global PSD2 provider. What we care about is to um, establish secure connection between different applications and the underlying banks. So in the PSD2 open banking context, we work as both uh, an AISP and a PISP, um, effectively uh, trying to enable uh, different businesses to jump on board the uh, open banking bandwagon. So what is an AISP? So AISP is a, a regulated activity um, that means uh, actually displaying the um, transactional data that comes from uh, an upstream bank. So is the act of displaying the data, aggregating the data, um, handling the data. And of course, like um, the because it's regulated, it makes sure that uh, the business that carry out this activity has all the, um, would say, the right technology checks, um, processes, people in place in order to take on this responsibility. And a PISP? Uh, very similar concept. This time around, instead of transacting with data, um, transactional data, we are talking about consuming uh, services from the bank, and very specifically here is making payments. So. Um, is effectively instructing the bank to move money from uh, a given bank account to another bank account. Of course, provided that the consumer will consent to that. Perfect. I wanted somebody else to do the definitions for me. <coughs> so thank you for that, Francesco. Um, Sam, how about you? So MoneyHub is all about uh, people first. So we're very customer focused. And a lot of companies say that, but at MoneyHub, we really mean it because we want to make your money go further, work harder. And to do that, that really means uh, bringing everything together so you can see it, so you can touch it and feel it and then have what I would call actionable onward journeys. So the AISP that um, you've just talked about, you know, enables you to bring it all together. And the PISP for me means that you can make actionable onward journeys to make stuff happen, which is really important. 
Brilliant. So we've heard from uh, from sort of the startups in the room. Um, Dan, do you want to discuss your role at RBS and um, any acronyms that RBS may have associated with it in terms of open banking? Yeah, that's a, <clears throat> that's a really good question, Sarah. There are some more acronyms. I'll, I'll, I'll put one out there. Uh, called an ASPSP, um, a bit longer than the others. So some, somehow or another, it must be more complicated, more important. But actually, um, ASPSPs are really banks, um, uh, regulated financial institutions, regulated credit institutions, payment services providers. Um, so generally, generally banks and payment style companies. Um, so we have a huge role to play in open banking. And those that attach to our new APIs or services, those third parties, we call them third parties, TPPs, they could either be an AISP, third party specializing in account information, uh, a PISP, a payment initiator, third party, or a combination of both. Um, truth be told, in as much as we're an ASPSP, we are a bank, and we are meant to be opening up interfaces to allow for this activity with customers' consent, of course. Uh, we also have a large role to play as a third party ourselves in that we will also offer a variety of services by connecting to other banks and financial institutions. Uh, in terms of my role, Sarah, I am the head of open banking, which might mean a lot of things, but essentially... <laughs> Within, within RBS, and well, RBS includes many brands. RBS, NatWest is probably most well-known on the high street. Uh, Coots, um, our private bank, and this, we have another seven or eight great brands as well. Uh, as from the head of open banking perspective, I run a bank-wide program uh, to do a few things. One of which is to sure we're compliant with regulation. That includes uh, PSD2, uh, Europe-wide regulation. We are still part of Europe. <laughs> and as well as... Um, <laughs> as well as uh, UK regulation. So in the United Kingdom here, uh, we fall under the Competition and Markets Authority uh, regulator as well. And um, they kind of gave a head start to nine UK banks, including ourselves, to get moving on things like open banking a bit before, 18 months before the rest of Europe, really. Brilliant. So we've got a few more acronyms in there. Um, Faith, uh, do you want to discuss your involvement with the OBIE? Do you want to explain that acronym? Okay, great. So I'm Faith Reynolds, and I'm the Independent Consumer Representative for the Open Banking Implementation Entity, OBIE. OB. Can we call it OB? Just OB, as a pause. I, I guess so. I, don't, I have not that. been told that I shouldn't call it. Dan, have you, OB? Are you going with OB? Or Open Banking, I think. I could go with OB or Open Banking. Open Banking works, doesn't it? <laughs> so, so I represent all things consumer at Open Banking, and part of that is to try and make Make sure we get the consumer voice in the design and implementation of the APIs. And the implementation entity or open banking is there to um, create standards. So um, instead of having lots of individual um, ASPSPs, banks, building societies, um, creating their own interface for TPPs, the idea is to create a set of standards so that it's much easier for TPPs to connect into the ASPSPs. So fintechs into banks and uh, and and as part of that the implementation entity open banking has got a set of standards and also some customer experience guidelines which the banks also have to adhere to so that customers have a good experience when they are sharing their data brilliant so now we've got all the acronyms out of the way up front let's get into the conversation um and there's no doubt that when what we're seeing in the uk and across europe has largely been rules and regulations driven. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about two, PST2 and the Competition and Market Authority in the UK has also issued a set of rules and regulations. How hard has it been to implement those for everybody around the table, really? Because you've all had to work, you know, to a rule, to a rule book or, a, you know, prescriptive regulation. So has that been difficult? Um, can talk about layers. So uh, how hard it is um, on two 
different points. Like the first one is a technological, uh, would say, uh, process. So it's uh, actually like the technical mean of integrating, having to integrate with different interfaces, but also have to deal, um, I would say, on a daily basis with different banks and uh, try to make sure that the performance, the customer journey, the accuracy of the data, the reliability of the service are um, actually in line with what um, different businesses around the UK wants and they need in order to operate their services. So that's one massive hurdle. And I, I do appreciate that banks, they, they of course, like they have maybe legacy infrastructure to, to handle, to um, kind of repurpose for this um, number of uh, futuristic almost like initiative that are happening right now. Uh, but on the other side, uh, I think for us, it's massively important that the banks will, will get it right and will do a great job in um, actually perfectioning their, their technical interfaces to um, interact with us. Um, the other side is, is the challenge around um, interpretation of regulations. Uh, I think we are still like going through a phase where um, PSD2 and open banking are actually uh, analyzed and let's say unpacked and unfold in, in different like um, part of the market are trying to uh, make their own interpretation of what some specific language means for them. And that has been like massively hard, I would say even more than the technical side of things, uh, just because uh, one little word, one little comma, or one little expression can dramatically change the number of activities that you actually have to carry out, comply with, think about, and, and, and really like make sure that your business, your organization is up to the job. I wasn't going to open up that can of worms, but you've done it, which is good. I was going to refer to the ambiguity, I guess, between the PSD2 regulations and then the CMA regulate. How have you, this is super interesting, um, especially from your point of view, how have you sort of managed that um, going on, especially over the past sort of six to six to 12 months? Um, I mean, I, I don't have like really uh, um, a playbook. Like we try to um, unpack both pieces of regulation, try to see um, like the extent where like they actually overlap with each other. Uh, we know that in a way um, they are uh, they are trying to really go after the same goal. So they should be mostly aligned. Uh, from time to time, there are like some nuances that they're actually like chain things. Like um, specifically, open banking is way more. Uh, a technical standard. PSD2 is way more like um, a global policy and PSD2 itself need to be then declined into um, country-specific policy and piece of regulation. So it's, it's, a, it's a way more, I would say, a complex process uh, compared to open banking where uh, on the other side you get, you get way more flexibility of something that is built for the UK, for the UK banks, just only nine banks in the in the regulatory framework, so it's something that can actually evolve way faster than than PSD2. PSD2 is way more broad as a as a as a, a piece of regulation. Um, it is definitely like covering uh, open banking as a as a broader topic, but also uh, credit cards and and a number of other um, financial um, institutions. So um, I, I would say that in a way they they are mostly aligned. But still, it, there's there's a little bit of interpretation that we have to do as businesses to try to to wrangle through it. 
Does anybody agree or disagree with Francesca? Have their own thoughts on this one? I've seen obviously eager faces around the table. <laughs> go jump in, Faith. Go for it. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is it is really complicated for firms. I think from a consumer point of view, I think it's it's hard because PSD two doesn't uh, cover every eventuality, and um, and there are bits that are missing, such as things like refunds, for instance. And so, um, seamless refunds from a consumer point of view seems like an important thing, but it's 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 hard if you don't have the leverage to try and um, kind of create more standards or and so that's where the the open banking order has been quite helpful actually in providing for places where um, you can make it better for consumers so for instance I think within the open banking standard there's the consent dashboard and there's the access dashboard so providing information uh, TPP and ASPSP about from a consumer point of view I can see all in one place what are the consents or or authorizations that I've given uh, and manage those um, at the ASPSP Um, I'm pushing to make that information portable as portable data so that others can then use that as well but but it, it, it provides a bit more flexibility and a bit more opportunity to get some real consumer friendly um, standards in there which um, I, I guess on the PSD2 front sometimes you feel like we're, we're missing a bit on that that consumer side. Because yeah, I saw the latest the V3 standards that were set by Open Banking came out and they were in PowerPoint. This was good. This was like they were digestible. <laughs> uh, I was like, thinking I can pictures. read this. <laughs> yeah, there was like pictures and like why screenshots, wireframes, and everything. So I was like, this is this is getting better. This is getting better. But, so I was going to say in terms of, in terms of the difficulty <laughs> and complexity of this. So we talked about you know the the ambiguity versus you know the more prescriptive regs in the, in the UK. I mean, from your perspective, Dan, has it been difficult to sort of drive this through culturally in a bank? Is it kind of because it's a different way of thinking? Would be my would be my guess for an institution like. RBS. Yeah, so I, I think that it's a, it's a good question in terms of cultural change. Just getting something stood up is difficult enough. I think we just covered that. It's a, it is a bit of a tough journey. Um, much of, much of banking has grown organically as well, as well as through acquisition. And banks can be a patchwork quilt in the, in the, in the back rooms, in the boiler rooms. And uh, that has been a challenge. Once a house is built, it's often, often difficult to start uh, mucking about with the plumbing, if you will. At the same time, I think in the UK, we're proud that we've done a relatively good job. Actually, not even, wouldn't even qualify that. We have done a good job at the OBIE, working with nine banks, working with fintech representation and consumer and business advocates, coming up with a set of standards that ensure reasonable level of commonality, even, even within standards. I mean, it, clearly there's interpretation, there's testing, there's what shows up in a description field, but we're off to a good start. And I think that's an important differentiator with the rest of Europe. Um, and there's some good things in Europe. I mean, there's, uh, they may not be run necessarily at a national level, but we're seeing a few groups set up, at least three or four that I'm aware of, trying to drive standards, trying to implement things like directories of approved third parties and the rest. So I think we'll get there. Um, but again, with, within the bank itself, it's been a mix of a lot of core platforms, which can take, you know, there's some heavy lifting to change those, but almost every bank has a different varieties of plans they've had in place around API enablement, plans they've had in place around how to, how to move information um, with less friction around different systems. So we kind of we kind of dipped in part and parcel to an environment, and, um, and we're making it work. I mean, at least nine banks are making it work, and it's only nine, but we have to keep in mind that's the almost the entirety of the UK current account uh, landscape, yeah? I'm going to ask a cheeky question now. Go ahead. Has it been expensive? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say that. It would be a little cynical to say that was by design, but um, <laughs> it, um, it is expensive. Um, 
some of it is some of it is net new. So when I say net new, uh, API standards and so on, those are brand new implementations. It costs some money. Sometimes it's getting familiar with new standards, new technology platforms to uh, to expose APIs on a large scale. Um, um, that's net new, but it's you don't tend to have the overhead of having to touch things that are already there. Um, it, it, there is expense associated. So when we're doing plumbing work. Uh, with our core banking platforms, um, we have ideas in mind of one had to make had to had to move those towards a great architectural strategy. So we we carry that on our shoulders, and um, a lot of testing as well. We have to keep in mind that these channels are used by millions and millions of customers today, and it wouldn't be a great outcome if we're able to get an API stood up, and yet you know, three, five, six million other customers started uh, having challenges, issues, or whatever. So um, the t- even just the testing and planning is rather intense. So just to, um, to to go back to a point that Sam made earlier about payments, you were talking about PISP and how you think that makes things, well, how you, you hope that makes things actionable. Um, am I right in saying that we haven't seen an awful lot of innovation on the on the payments side yet? No, because I think it is reasonably new. And, you know, I'll go so far to say that, you know, I don't think the motivation for people that are making a lot of money from payments, I don't see any motivation from them to want to share, you know, the faster payments mechanism. You know. So, so the, just, just to be clear, the idea of the, the, the open API um, payments mechanism is to make cut out the middleman basically so you yeah. move money around with much few, with many fewer parties involved well i mean you know i i go so far you know faster payments has been around in the banking world since 2010 so it's eight years old already that technology and uh, I, i'm not sure how many people really have ever had faster payments available because it's it's only really recently that uh, we're seeing it bank to bank and you know it, it is instant it does mean you see your money appear you know in one place and then another and and that's actually been around the the ability to do that. So I, I think uh, you know what's happened with PSD two has driven even some existing technology forward. But of course, the ability for TPPs like you know um, TrueLayer and MoneyHub to then enable customers to make uh, what I call. Uh, actionable events at the time because I think everyone will appreciate with you know convenience and consumer behavior uh, it's all very well to be able to say to someone well you can do that now but um, actually what that means you've got to go and set a direct debit up and go and make that payment and and you, the cust- you know the actual customer journey is broken and and I think the the tolerance for that is much less and but on top of that the fees that uh, you know that people can do this for as businesses is hugely attractive so for example my 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 husband dragged me along to to buy an electric car on saturday because he's obsessed about electric cars I'm not obsessed about cars, and so I sat there very bored, and there was a lot of paperwork. But when I sat there, I watched him uh, make his deposit for this car that arrives in March, and there was a lot of money that went on that deposit. And it went, I, I sat there thinking, I wonder how they're going to take the payment, because I can't help it. And uh, they <laughs> We the, all do that. We they, do that. They took the payment on his card, and uh, I thought, so I couldn't help it. The poor sales guy in the car room is like, so so who who uh, in your business you know, d- you know, know, would be interested in saving money on that on that fee that you've just incurred? The poor guy doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about. <laughs> Eventually, I managed to talk to someone who does have a clue, and I find out that that, that you know that there's two brothers that own 47 dealerships. Wow! Oh, and I right. thought to myself, you know, they'll be spending a lot of money that they probably don't need to anymore. I was going to say, like off off the back of that, I mean, and I don't. It'd be interesting to get sort of a straw poll around the table in terms of how how scared should the schemes be of this blowing up from a from a payments perspective and actually taking, I guess, sort of marginal chunks out of you know current transaction volumes going it, forward. It's not going to be marginal. It will be massive. 
absolutely massive and you know already i can i can t- i've got some i've got some data so i've got some real data give us some numbers yeah, we love numbers so three and a half percent of our connected accounts uh spend more than a thousand pounds from each of those accounts per month and in via paypal so you know you, you've only got to look at right through to 16 and a half percent of every connected account that we have are spending more than 10 percent through paypal so you know we we will be able to switch all of that straight through to payment, you know, faster payments. And sorry, yeah, no, I, was just, I was just wondering because this is interesting to me because we haven't seen a lot of PIS uh, in the market, and but just and so we went live in Money Hub today. <laughs> oh, oh, congratulations! Oh, 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 it's really exciting. Do you think? Do you think though that there is? So this is what I'm interested to know. Is, do you, I was going to say, get the party poppers out. The producers are looking. Do you think though that there is more kind of like? Um, value for consumers in uh, PIS when it's used account to account. So when it's used from from my account to one of my other accounts or my account to a creditor, um, is are we likely to see more growth there first before we see it being used in a commercial e-commerce setting? Because I kind of feel like cards have still got quite a stronghold in that space, whereas in the yeah. paying myself or moving money, sweeping, if you like, is much much more likely to take on quicker. So I, I don't think so. So I think what's going to be, it, we, it will definitely be the merchants. But it's not for it's not for all use cases. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not expecting faster payments to suddenly replace your Oyster card because that would be ridiculous, right? So I'm not I'm not I'm not saying that. But there are so many use cases for payments where the merchant, the business, will save money. And it's and you know I spent three hours in that in that car showroom. What's another fifteen seconds to do a faster payment? Like it, it doesn't matter how long that you know. It doesn't matter that that takes a little bit of time. It can even be a bit clunky for now. It won't matter because the whole process of buying the car is way more clunky than faster payments. So I think when you put it in context with what you're doing, but you know you've only got to get two brothers who figure out on their P and L what that means for them as a business. And the motivation's there because of the legislation, because you can't pass that cost on to the customer anymore, which no, is right. what they used to do. You so can do in the... Australia, just whilst we're on the Shocking. conversation. Shocking. <laughs> I guess it's a... How to get an Australian <laughs> digging to every podcast. Do you think Sorry. there's any, like, because obviously as a consumer representative, you know, looking at, um, it's like authorised push payment fraud at the moment as well in another space. Uh, what's the kind of feel around how, sh- how we should we protect consumers in this space? Because that's the, that's the big thing with cards you get um, when it's a credit, you get obviously Section 75, which I presume should, should expand to other credit products. But with chargeback, you get some protection there. Is that, I think that's one of the kind of big concerns around PIS if it travels over faster payments how do we make sure that people aren't um, aren't put at a disadvantage by moving from cards to payment initiation service well because you know at the end of the day it's you, you know uh, in order to to make some payments uh, what what could happen is you'll have to go home and make the payment at home so you're making a bank to bank payment aren't you I mean that is all you're doing and we're and, and all we're doing is, is facilitating that to be able to happen like there and then rather than having to send someone home to do it it's not a different thing. And, you know, actually, I would argue there is some potentially slightly better protection. There's 24 hours. There's no dispute, you know, if, as in the bank has to honour that, you know, bank-to-bank payment. Um, but if we're going to, you know, kind of go on about refunds, it, you know, at the end of the day, you can't tell me that, that Coyote, if there isn't a big issue, that between our insurance as a, as a TPP, the bank and the Coyote, that we won't sort that out, because we will. You know, it's not unsortable, you know, if, it, you know, if on the off chance it does go wrong, which, to be honest, I looked at this in quite a lot of detail, and really... The 
that the really only thing is if you put the wrong account number in. So you send the money to the wrong place. So there is an onus on making sure that, you know, you get that right. But, you know, it's from your account and it is to the car yard's account, isn't it? It is. I guess it's when the car goes wrong and you've when bought the car. it. So, so it, when you've got when the car. So well, I think that's really charge So what back. happens if you go home and he made that payment now and the car goes wrong? Because you've got chargeback, you can go to your card provider and and say actually I've got a good here that's faulty or doesn't work. You've got some extra layer of protection. So I think so there's the kind of that's the challenge. Just, so this, isn't is, it? this is going. This is what we're talking about now. So what we're talking yeah. about the mandatory requirements you talked about already, which is what everybody around this table has kind of stood up. It's the account uh, being able to view account transactions and making the payments. But what you're talking about now is going above and beyond what's currently required right well, so well, well hang on but i would say just on that you've got consumer protection you know you actually have the law which says that you know if a good is faulty you can take it back well this you don't need is a card whole, you don't need yeah. a card to do that so this is the whole kind of question i guess and this is the conversation i have quite a lot is is it down to should it be part of payments the consumer protection piece or should it be part of contract law and, and i've had a really interesting conversation with another pis recently saying it's contract law it's nothing to do with payments we're trying to make it cheaper but all the time we've got kind of like the the super complaint from which which is saying you know we want harmonized protection across payments it's confusing for consumers so i guess there's just a little bit of a challenge how do we how do we take into account we've got PIS and PSD2 pushing at the boundaries and trying to bring down the barriers, trying to get rid of that bundling of services. And then you've got, on the other hand, concerns at the PSR around authorised push payment fraud, making sure there's protection, you know, consideration of whether faster payments should have chargeback facilities, etc. So it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a whole thing of a whole load of stuff going on for consumers. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think you're both right. I think um, Sam, I'm, I'm probably partial to Sam's view that this will be meaningful. It won't be immaterial. In fact, I'd even imagine in the, in the example of an Oyster card, there's nothing that would prevent this from working there either with using a phone or other device. I mean, realistically, what resets the payments capabilities from where we came from are a strong customer authentication from PSD2. It resets how customers use cards today and use accounts today. And so that, re- that, that resets a whole industry. That changes what friction and what frictionless looks like. And I do think that the open banking uh, payments by law have to follow along with that with that same construct. There are there are features that are not in faster payments that are in certain card schemes, whether it be chargeback on debt cards here in the UK, Section 75 in the UK. Keep in mind, there's differences between fraud and consumer protection. There's two different, we, we, yeah, should, we shouldn't conflate, yeah. um, I think, fraud with, um, with, with product or purchase protection. But I'm a believer that innovation isn't necessarily driven by prescription. So we're, we're building the motorways. We're opening these things up. I think even without adding any additional features, I think the, I honestly do agree with Sam, the open banking payments is, is ripe to take off. And realistically, if there's a need, the market will solve for a need. Whether that's done on a bank-by-bank basis, whether a group of merchants comes together and says, hey, we like these so much that we're going to encourage customers by putting some, some agreement, best practices or, or, or legal agreement in place, we don't know. But I have no doubt it will happen. So let- I was just going to say on that point, um, so that's kind of an interesting one in terms of driving adoption to the payments initiation process. Because again, even with what's going to be dropped next September, um, 
it still doesn't look great as in in comparison to you know the one click journeys and what you would kind of expect from an online payments facility it's still a little bit clunky or you know more clunky well, yeah but two factor authentication comes in in september for credit card payments so i think one's going to get one's going to get clunkier and ours is going to get easier that so, was my point you, you know, know tr- trusted so, beneficiaries yeah. all, all the things that need to come into place i think will fall into place, Adam. Honestly, I, th- I, th- I think that those will fall into place. As you say, there will be equivalence between these channels. So there'll be more friction on the existing channels. There'll be friction which wasn't there before, but it'll be equivalent in open banking. There's still some things, as Faith rightly says, that need to be sorted out, hopefully by the market, in terms of consumer protection and other things. Fraud protection, I don't think, is the concern because fraud protection tends to be very well managed in the UK, regardless of if it's a card or a payment. But certainly in terms of consumer protection, I think that'll land. I think we've already we've already got some clarity from Europe that uh, we have to support all, all forms of authentication, including mobile biometrics and the rest. With all that in place, it should be even. I mean, honestly, it should be even, particularly for the kinds of things, massive payments, which weren't really supported well on cards anyhow, even down to a small payment on the tube. Why wouldn't you? I mean, there's an exemption in there for small payments, for transportation, so, et cetera. So when, when we, so we talk quite a lot about kind of implementing it and how you guys have sort of, you know, got your heads around the differences between the regulations and what they're going to mean for you as businesses. But this is fundamentally designed to help customers. And as we've just described, the customers are not really there yet. They're not, I mean, there are, you know, what is it, 500,000 people using Yolt, which I think is the, the probably got the biggest like, consumer base of, of, of these services um, based on open banking. But what... You just, I, th- I think you've just hinted at it, but if we could go into kind of what it actually means for the consumer, so sort of next September or whenever everybody gets their acts together, because I'm, I'm a little bit cynical, um, what is it that's going to make... What, <laughs> look, come on, I'm going on historical evidence here, guys. Ah, but uh, history's not, you know... Please prove me wrong, I'm very happy. Um, what, what, what is actually going to make customers start using this so i will start off by saying i don't think customers need to know what open banking is i think customers need to find something that's easier and better than what they're doing right now so if in three years time when we go out and say 25 percent of customers have still never heard of open banking but 75 percent of customers are using psp initiated payments then great we've that's a win but i mean i'll go back i'll go to you francesca to start with you know what what do you think is going to make people actually start using and adopting these services yeah uh, i think you have to look at open banking as a massive um, opportunity for optimizing business processes. That's most and foremost. Um, payment is a great example, like uh, the whole idea of disrupting um, four-party schemes um, is actually great. I think like around the world, like India, uh, Southeast Asia, like they are kind of pioneering uh, what does it mean having direct bank payments versus um, like the, the, the Visa and MasterCard that, that we are all like used with. Um, on the data side of things, you, you have to think in terms of uh, what sorts of efficiency you are um, bringing to the marketplace. So there can be some very interesting like customer experiences, like account aggregation, where you can see all your finances together. I think it's, it's very useful to um, teach how to actually get the best out of your, um, out of your money, out of your um financial behaviors, uh, how to save, how to improve your um, personal standing. But really, like, I think open banking can, can really go well above and beyond uh, pure like, account aggregation. Uh, at Trulayer, we see two massive uh, driver of growth for, for open banking. One is um, 
let's say, being, being able to identify uniquely a consumer through their bank account. It's what we call identity. So whether now open banking is fully delivering on uh, making the banks uh, an identity provider, um, it can be partially true. Um, however, I, I truly believe that on the long run, um, banks will become identity providers and they are ready actually in this, this position and that will create massive opportunity for streamlining signups and cost of compliance and identification of consumer, reducing frauds, uh, reducing uh, possible, um, let's say, friction during like uh, using other uh, third-party financial services. And that's one. The second one is um, risk-based processes. Whenever you have to transact with a, with a party that is unknown, whether it's a consumer or an SMB, so a, a company, uh, you, you have to understand whether this, this um, new entity, this, this new participant is, is trustful or not. And in a digital process, you actually have very little signal that it's actually coming from this, this individual or, or business. So how you solve that? Um, it turns out that your bank account is, is actually like a good picture of who you are and what you do. So uh, imagine like uh, lending, uh, how profoundly can be impacted by having real-time access to your data, whether it's a one-off or like reoccurring over time. Of course, like businesses will have a responsibility to um, handle this data um, in a in a in a very like responsible way because really you, you are dealing with very very precious piece of information. But on the other side, well, you have a massive opportunity to just streamline um, risk based um, decision. Uh, I'll make an example. Like recently, we um, we did a partnership with with one of the um, let's say many different branches of the of the government to um, eventually help consumers uh, to uh, take on some specific uh, government aid. Of course, those aids are only available to some specific consumers in, 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 in the UK. And we are going to help out the government to actually uh, figure out um, how to remove frauds and how to like streamline this whole process. This is massive convenience for consumers that we are really, really happy to see actually happening thanks to PSD2 open banking and everything that, that comes after. Yeah, no, I was, was going to upon on those. I think, I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the, the, in the first instance, the first point you make, you know, banks, they're looking to play to their strengths and their strengths are exactly what you just said, you know, identity management, fraud management. That's kind of, you know, that is their, I suppose their reason for being because that's where the trust is with the customer. Um, and I think that's a really, really important point when people have sort of, I guess, been fear-mongering to the banks originally when open banking first came out. And actually, the banks have sort of, you take, if you take a step back and you think of the opportunity that they've got and where they can play very, very strongly, um, that is definitely one sweet spot, super sweet spot. And Dan, I'll come on to you in a sec for that. Um, I think on the second point, again, like there's been so many uh, like great um, examples in the industry at the moment, Zopa being one, um, Iwerka being another, where in terms of like how you, I guess, facilitate that loan process and make that a lot easier, not having to scrape through sort of, you know, PDFs, but actually you're looking at real-time data, how that can speed up your processes, how it co you know cuts the cost of operations and whatever else. You're seeing that in the market more and more. Um, that will grow. 
Yeah. Super looking forward for that to grow. It's, I mean, you're right. It's, it's for the customer. It's all. It's not about open banking at all. It's about the value proposition. Um, so you know, there's what is it? Eleven. I looked it up. Eleven point one million mortgage holders right now. So to me, that's eleven point one million open banking customers, right? Because you know, you remortgage or you take out a mortgage. Who wants to do it the way it's happening at the moment? And open banking can absolutely transform that process. And it will take time to do so. So I kind of also alluded to the fact that it's like, uh, you know, if you think back to when you did your online shopping 10 years ago, it was pretty clunky. It didn't work that well, but it didn't stop me from doing it. I still consoled myself after the fourth time when it had fallen over that it was still quicker to do it on my couch than go into the shop, which it probably was. So, you know, you have your early adopters, and but actually very quickly moves through to now to what we're seeing, you know, online. So I think you know mortgages is another one, but but there are so many. I mean, you, you you know you talk about there's so many use cases that consumers don't need to know about open banking. Oh, the fact find. You know the fact find in, in the wealth industry. I mean, I am on a mission to get rid of the fact find. You don't need a fact find. You need to know your customer. And to your point, your bank account, the transactions. You need to know your customer. That's that's the rule and the the obligation. But who, who wants an advisor doesn't want to do the fact fine? The customer doesn't want to do a fact fine. They're terrible. So, I mean, we've talked quite a lot about, um, you know, <laughs> I'm not, not going to address that point. But I'm going to consensus made. Leave, leave you to that. Um, but we talked there about, you know, the, the proposition being what sells the customer. Do you think, and, we, and when I think we've talked uh, quite extensively about how sort of customer money is protected and fraud can be detected and, and chargebacks and all that. What about customers' concern over their data? Because we are seeing people starting to pull their data back in, to turn things off. They now know how to stop, you know, to go into their browser, to turn the third-party cookies off. An awful lot of people know how to do that now because they don't want their data out there. So is that going to be a stumbling block? Because you have to ask people for their consent. We, we keep talking about this. Do you think people are going to be like, actually, you know what, no, I'm just done. Like, it's well, they're not, not going to have a mortgage then. They're not going to have a loan. You're not going to buy a car. You're not going to live. <laughs> I mean, I, I well, of course, that's the proposition. It's what, it's what, yeah, it's what, I mean, what, are, you, what are you willing to give up yeah. in exchange for? In the Scottish Hebrides, right? You can off, you can go in your tent. Absolutely. Wasn't there a gentleman that lived for thirty years on the moors and ate um, eggs? You know, like from the nests. That's how he survived. And they found him thirty years later. He'd been out there. Uh, so, you know, you could do How that. How far in advance are we talking about? <laughs> I was you thinking by next right? September, but, like, if we, if we want to go 40 years in the future, I, I could see that, but... Adam, was that you in the morning? <laughs> yeah. but, That's but when in, I had hair. It's <laughs> like three years' time, perhaps, do we think data is still going to be a concern, or even at the end of next year, will, will customers still have concern over their I data? I must say, like, a lot of the, again, data scaremongering, like, for, for me, and I, I, I'm massive generalisation here, but I do feel that whenever I speak to people and they say, well, what about the data and data security? and this sort of stuff and then you actually look and view somebody let's say connecting to a TPP and they just do it like it, it's yeah. literally like they don't think so this, about it I think the research shows that if the value proposition is is good then consumers will will make that choice to share their data and actually the, we've we've just uh, so the yeah, open bank has done some research recently where um uh, it looked particularly at um, how people wanted to share bits of their data. So API endpoints it goes to, but effectively, you know, can we use those API endpoints to promote user privacy so that consumers decide which chunks of their data they want to share? And um, and I'd been pushing really hard on this, but the research came back and, and does, uh, does reinforce other research that actually if a firm comes to you and says, this is what we're offering in exchange for your data, and the consumer says, well, I want that product and that seems to be a good good." firm to me they will give the data over that 
that, that that firm's asking for because they trust that firm to use it and they don't know what that firm does or doesn't need. Now, we might, I think there's a space for kind of seeing increasing education around people, as you were saying, Sarah, people begin to think, hang on a minute, how's my data being used? And there's definitely a nervousness among consumers when it comes to agency. So who's who are you working for? Are you on my side or are you on somebody else's side? If you're on my side, you can have my data. If you're on their side, you can't have my data. So I think there will be some propositions where consumers are a bit more nervous because, you know, they look at their own their own financial situation they think I'm not going to get a loan if I share my data Mm -hmm. and so I think there'll be some spaces where consumers are more nervous but generally speaking if the proposition's right consumers give up their data I think it's a like huge problem of perception like if you you look at it rationally um, think about the the, uh, loan underwritement process you're already like asking your consumers to share their um, financial statement, your bank sta- their bank statement. So this data is already shared. It's already, in a way or another, in the public. The problem with that is, is how you process this data. So it's a massive burden for the, for the uh, actual business, but also for the customer, because they have to go fetch this statement. This, this statement, by the time they actually submit, is already hold. So the business will ask, like, Another statement, once again, a fresh one. And so it's massive inefficiency that you're building up and, and doesn't go through, I uh, would say, um, in, in the direction of helping consumers. Actually, like it delays the whole operation without really um, a mean for that. So I think rationally, it's quite clear that it's safer, it's more secure, it's better for the businesses, it's better for consumers. Now, how do we create a perception for consumers They actually like, they can trust this, this, this way of interacting with third parties? So I, I think the banks, they have a big responsibility to, to make this happen. And so uh, I think there is a huge, um, huge point to be made whether... Uh, this is just pure compliance work that they, they have to go through or it's something that they can go above and beyond to actually educate consumers that this is good for them. So I'm really like, looking forward to see uh, a massive, I don't know, um, marketing campaign uh, maybe run from, I don't know, uh, somebody at RBS or, or, or I don't know, any other, any, any other <laughs> bank in the UK saying, we work with those three, four, five, six, ten great um, application um, to to help you to do so something meaningful. I'm gonna gonna move us towards the end of this conversation because um, exciting as it is, we we can't keep talking all afternoon. But I want to make sure we have time to cover the the final point, um, which is you know what can the industry take away from this? So this has been a huge experiment, right, for everybody, whether you're a TPP, um, Sam, I know you've run businesses before, Faith, I know you've worked elsewhere, and, you know, RBS has, has never tried to do anything like this. It's been sort of probably forced into, do, you know, being forced into doing something like this. So um, I, I would really like to know your key thoughts on, like, if we were going to do this again, how do we do it better? We're not going to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. No more regulation. I don't know if we had to do this again. I don't think we're going to do it again. I mean, we're doing what we're doing. I think within the UK, there's a strong drive and a lot of enthusiasm about creating standards and creating operating models and making it clear. I'm imagining that from a pan-European perspective, in the UK, we will have been seen to have done a pretty good job. And it doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of pain getting here. We've gotten to a decent place. 
I do tend to think that markets need to develop and innovation happens in markets, not ideally through regulation. Ideally, regulation clears the way of impediments and constraints, but the market develops what the market develops. I think so in, ideally, you wouldn't use regulation, but regulation does work to drive change. Regu- putting, putting the motorways in place and, and, and setting some standards around who's safe to drive and how you're safe to drive seems like a sensible thing. What cars people build as long as they're safe, <laughs> whether somebody wants to ride a motorcycle or whatever else, is, is something where, where there's innovation. Whether there should be a self-driving car is, a, is, is innovation, and, and regulators will look at those things and determine if they're, if they're right. But I do think that we've got a very myopic view here on sharing one specific kind of data, which is banking data. And I think that at least in the European context, this is the tip of a very large iceberg around do people control their data and can they share it in, in a standard way? And the fact of the matter is, if you wanted to know about any of us, you'd probably need to look at online commerce sites and online search sites and social channels, and that would tell us a lot more about ourselves than our bank accounts. And that we know that's true. We know that something north of a third of households use um, a particular company's prime shopping. And to understand what that spend profile looks like, that can't be shared today. You can't see that from my bank account. And it's, there's, there's, there's no regulation or anything that says you have to share that. So I actually think we're at the very tip of an iceberg. And I think the banking context is interesting, but I think it's much broader than that. Okay. Francesca? Yeah, I think what, what, what I would like to see from the regulator is the courage to uh, just bring the, like the seeds of everything they've done till today and just bring it to the, to the conclusion. So I'm thinking about... Uh, for instance, a variable uh, payment. So the ability of um, using payment initiation not just for a single uh, payment, but actually as a full replacement of a potential like other payment instrument, like a debit card or a or a, or a credit card. Um, I think there are still like some areas where the regulator, or maybe just the industry, but I, I would say the regulator is is is, is plays better. Uh, they can have a massive impact. And just like having the courage to, to, to go the last mile and, uh, and just make it happen. Sam? I mean, I would definitely support that, but I'd probably go a step further and say, if we're doing this again, I think we should have done it for pensions and, you know, and we should have gone wider and harder. I mean, just get on with it because there's a lot of faffing going on now in other areas. And, and, and actually, when you look at what we've achieved in the banking sector, um, I think we could have probably actually just had one lot of pain and got on with it. Get it over with. Yeah. Faith? Yeah, I'm a strong... I'm strongly behind expanding APIs to other products. Um, from a consumer point of view, I think there's a couple of things. Uh, one is that um, I think it would have been good to do much more communication around the, the key thing, which is sharing your data. That's a key new thing. People can make payments. People know about payments. They kind of get that. But actually, you know, the fact that your data is portable, that's the key new thing. I think we could be communicating that much better. And then I guess this week is talk money. So just a little plug. Actually, you know, how I think the other thing is setting a vision for how do we want society to, to be better off as a result of data sharing um, how are we going to make sure some of the ethical frameworks that sit around that are in place so that everybody's better off as a result of, of data sharing and, um, and and really how can we use it to help people manage their money um, and get the most out of it adam if you had to go through all this again what would you what would you like to see um i, I think for me is uh, so, sort of i guess as a commentator i get on the outside is more just um 
more of an idea from a strategic perspective of where we're going from a propositional sense. Uh, and I think aligning some of the stuff that's happened, um, certainly from my experience in the banks, to sort of an end vision and end goal, which is based on like an education of this is what it can do for you. And therefore, this is how it's going to impact customers' lives. Because some of this stuff is actually super groundbreaking. And you know, I've seen people sort of online and, and writing blogs and stuff sort of playing it down a lot. And I think that's like unhelpful um, well, annoying just, it's, it's not even that it's just short-sighted it's like it's it's this is going to be in my opinion anyway this is going to be absolutely massive and i think the you know the inflection point for me is you know the aggregation of accounts with my wife who knows nothing about financial services suddenly sees you know or goes through the process and sees you know another bank account pop up in her current incumbent bank accounts um app and she's gonna be like oh my god that's amazing how come that's happened that's going to be awesome and i kind of wished a little bit that we got to that point of knowing that's where we were going to go way back when because we probably could have got there a lot quicker but saying that we'll get there (laughs) we're just going to take a quick break now to hear from our sponsors i wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future they say robots could become more intelligent than humans which can only be a good thing right Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today... Customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets, on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Well, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you all so much for joining me. Where can people find out more about you and your companies? Dan? Yeah. Where, where, where can you find an RBS, Dan? Yeah. You, can, you can look at many corners on the high street. Uh, is, is that true for RBS, though? Is it not NatWest? Is uh... NatWest, NatWest here in the um, in England, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland in uh, Scotland, Ulster Bank North Northern Ireland. What about you? Can then people find you on Twitter if they have questions? An email address, a LinkedIn, perhaps? I'm not, 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 I'm not much of a uh, of a Twitter fan myself. Okay, <laughs> just leave it hanging, then. You're a man of mystery. That's fine. But certainly, no, but, but, but seriously, if any, if, if there is, if 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 anybody wants to interact, by all means, I think through uh, our friends over at Eleven FS. Perfect. How about you, Francesco? So you can visit our website trulayer.com uh, on Twitter at trulayer. Um, I guess uh, LinkedIn, just look for my first name and last name. And um, otherwise, just go visit our, our office in, uh, in, in London. Bold. Tell people where you live. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Sam? 
Uh, well, the same. So moneyhubenterprise.com, the website, but uh, on LinkedIn, by all means, I, I, I get a lot of nice messages and, and I've had some, some great contact with people around this whole area on LinkedIn. So my name, so happy to take any messages that way or come and visit the penthouse in Bristol as we we're talking about. <laughs> so lovely. So you're very welcome to come and see the bees on the penthouse in the garden. So that would be great. Yeah, we'd like to see you. Sounds idyllic down there. Uh, Faith, how about you? So I'm on LinkedIn if you want to talk to me. Um, if you want to find out about uh, open banking, it's openbanking.org.uk. And also there is a very nice, easy to find list of um, um, regulated providers who are providing some of these services. So if you actually just want an app, go and have a look and see what people have got for you. How about you, Adam? Well, I work for 11FS, so you can just uh, hit, hit the website and you're in. I mean, I could be like a terror and yell at you, but, but did you have a, do you have a Twitter account? You I do have a Twitter ever? account. Uh, it's at AdamD8, I think. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm positive. Adam, that is your professional one, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's got a mix of stuff on there. Oh, if you like Arsenal and open banking, it's the place to go. <laughs> you might have 50,000 new followers. Now. <laughs> yeah, quite. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kashansky. So if you like this and you want more open banking related content, do check out the following. We do have a blog series on our website and you can also go and find the minutes from the OB steering meetings, which are particularly entertaining reading. Good reading. reading. I've been through them myself. (laughs) The last set of minutes were fantastic read. (laughs) Fantastic read. Um, Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and drop us a review on iTunes. We love reading those reviews. That's all for this week. Thank you so much. 